Welcome, everybody, to The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian here, Dan's with me, and we've got a very special episode for you tonight for a couple reasons. One is, it's episode number 90. Nine zero. Hey, Brian. Hey, listeners. Yeah, not 90. It's a big number. We're getting there. The triple digits are on the horizon. Not far away to number 100. We gotta brainstorm something special to do. Because it'll be here before we know it. What else is special about this episode, Brian? Well, this is one we've been teasing for a while. Because we have our first two films from the year that we're currently in, 2022. The most recent so far, I think we had Luca from 2021. But now we have crossed into current year. And the films that we are covering, fresh off the presses are two updates to franchises that we have analyzed in the past. So, brand new, spanking fresh, for your consideration, we have brought to the table Zombies 3, which came out just a week ago, July 15th, and Scream 5 from a little earlier in the year. I actually just called Scream again. Just, just Scream, like the first one. But it's the fifth one. It's the worst trend in naming. It's so like you got to if you're going to do it, if you're going to do a sequel sort of, especially it's not even a true reboot. We'll get there. But why did they choose the same name for the first movie in the series? I feel like horror movies in particular are bad about that. Isn't there at least three Halloweens? Yes. OK, but trust that as with other things in the Scream franchise, it gets commented on mm-hmm. in the movie itself. Yeah. So, yeah. Pretty stoked to do a a revisit of previous franchise or, or series that that we've looked at in the past. Um, so for episode fifty five, now recall that we're on episode ninety now. So episode fifty five was I think either early October or perhaps late September of twenty twenty one. The episode was titled Slashers one hundred one, and the basis of that episode was we took a list from one of the hosts of the alternate ending podcast, Brennan, who is a big slasher aficionado. And I asked him for a, for a list of slasher movies we could discuss. And and he said, start with the scream franchise. So we kind of talked about slashers in general, as we talked about the four scream movies and uh, overall, we liked these movies. We enjoyed them. So we, we actually watched and discussed all four Scream movies uh, that had been released at that point. We both gave Scream 1 a very good. We both gave Scream 2 a very good. I gave Scream 3 a good-ish, and you gave it a good. And I gave Scream 4 a very good. I, I was quite a fan of that one, whereas you only gave it a good-ish. And remember, Scream 4 came out in 2011, which was like 10 years after the first three Screams. So now we kind of have a weird release timeline on the screams where we have one, two and three that were all within like three or four years of each other. Then a 10 year gap for Scream four and then another 10 year gap to Scream five. So so that's going to be one of the movies we're going to discuss. And then the other one came from our 58th episode, which is where we discussed the Disney Channel original movies, Zombies and Zombies 2. And these are the 
musicals. We're going to be discussing the third one here. So I gave the first Zombies a good. And Brian, you initially gave it a good-ish, although you subsequently revised that rating to a good. And then Zombies 2, I initially gave a good-ish, which I later downgraded to a three, which is a not-not-good. And Brian, you had you had a good-ish on that one. So we were right around the median on that one overall. But I think despite us giving stronger ratings to the Scream movies, the Zombies movies have persisted with us a little bit more. We've talked a lot about the Zombies movies. Yeah, they stick in your mind. They have a distinct flavor. I've certainly thought about them. There was a construction project I was involved with, and on the blueprints that I was keeping, I was using my pink and green highlighters and sending Dan updates on how it was progressing on my, my map, my my zombies color scheme map. <laughs> yeah, and... You know, I, I'm not s- sure that I would necessarily revise either of the ratings that I've already given, but sometimes it's not the best movies that are the movies you think about the most, and perhaps even that you think about the most fondly. I would say I have a lot of affection for the Zombies movies, even though I, I am not sure that they're actually that good. I mean, they're they're on the edge of good, even at their at their best, I would say. But yeah. It, it had me wondering, Brian, do you have any potential targets for, for revisits for us in the future beyond these two? Anything that you've you've been thinking that we need to take another look at at some point? Well, I think we're going to have to take a look at the Descendants series of DCOM musicals one day. Because it's out there. I just feel like we got to cross that bridge, too. Yeah. Something about Disney Channel original movies, musicals being made into trilogies. We have High School Musical, which we also talked about. And then now Zombies is up to a trilogy. I guess Teen Beach, we only got two outings. But yeah, Descendants, I think there's three of those. So we got to complete our collection. Right. Beyond that, I can't think of many franchises. But something we've discussed a little bit is revisiting Max Magician. Because that was a local film. And I don't know, I really enjoyed doing that episode. And Dan has acquired a DVD with a commentary track. So that's sure to provide some insight. I want to give that a watch and give some kind of update on that. It feels notable that both the Scream episode number 55 and the Zombies episode number 58 were pretty close together because those both came up in our previous spooky season slate in October which is not too, too far away. So you're going to be getting some more of that before too long. Uh, We get now here a little pre-taste of the Halloween season. And I just got a Facebook ad saying that the Renaissance Festival is coming up again in August. So that also not too far away. That's a little sooner than October. So maybe that's telling me that the Max Magician revisit is on the horizon. Oh, man. What about you, Dan? Anything that sticks to mind? Things we got to do? Planks in the platform for the goods? There's a couple of, I think, greenlit or rumored sequels. Uh, The Happy Death Day and the Now You See Me movies. We watched two of them, and I think third ones are potentially coming out of those ones. And then uh, I think you, you messaged me just a few weeks ago, as well as your brother, that they're making a new Spy Kids, apparently, too. So I would definitely watch and discuss Spy Kids. 
Oh, man, that's true. Thank you for doing your research. <laughs> yeah, we got to find out what happens to Mark Ruffalo's dad in Now You See Me 3, if it ever happens. Do we gotta? I mean, <laughs> we could. <laughs> Maybe we should, yeah. Just saying that we gotta it feels a little strong, though, for... <laughs> Potential episode title, Do We Gotta? <laughs> and also, I could continue my Thanksgiving coverage because I saw the Elvis musical biopic. Actually, just today I saw it, Brian. I, I uh, went out to the theater and, and sat in front of the big screen and saw the almost three-hour Elvis biopic. Oh, man. Brand hanking new. How was that? Uh, it was it was actually pretty good. I. I would uh, give it in the realm of a probably a low, very good. If I were to be giving it an, a rating on the is it good scale, it does a lot of really interesting, almost like mythological superhero stuff with the musical biopic. Just like is not at all your. I mean, in some ways, it's a run of the mill bio, musical biopic because it hits a lot of the beats. There is a first wife. There is a drug breakdown, but. It looks and feels a lot different from any musical biopic. It's made by, I think his name is Baz Luhrmann, who did the Romeo plus Juliet, the one that takes place in mid-90s Miami, but like uses the original Elizabethan English Shakespeare. And he also did uh, Moulin Rouge. Have you seen Moulin Rouge? I've not seen Moulin Rouge. I did see Romeo and Juliet, Romeo plus Juliet back in my freshman English class. But yeah, so if you've seen, I actually watched a bunch of Lerman's uh, movies in prep for seeing Elvis, so I kind of knew what sort of hyperactive, over-the-top style I was getting myself into, but maybe someday we could discuss a Lerman movie because I think it'd be interesting. He actually made, he, he's Australian, he made a an epic in the spirit of Gone with the Wind, except set in Australia, just called Australia, and you know who that stars? It's got Hugh Jackman and Nicole Kidman. Yeah. Neither of whom I knew were Australian back when that came out, but I know it now because they're on the poster that says Australia. That's right. We're treading water here. I think maybe it's time, Brian. I think we should we should talk about our, our focuses, our foci of the week. <laughs> I think you're right. We got to do it. So he here we go. Zombies 3. Brand, brand new. It could not be any newer. We were waiting for this to come out so we could do this episode, and now it's here. We thought we'd get it in February, because that's when the first two came out in, what was it, like 2015 and 2018? Something like that? I think it was 2018 and 2020. So it would have been right on schedule for 2022. Okay. Yeah, you're you're correct. It's it all gets mixed up. I think 2013, 2015 was Teen Beach and Teen Beach 2. So mm -hmm. it's all part of a continuum. The years keep coming and they don't stop coming. But what has happened in the interim between Zombies 2 and Zombies 3? Well, obviously, we've had a worldwide pandemic. Uh, but on the franchise front, we did get something called... Addison's Moonstone Mystery, which Dan actually found and, and pointed me to, which was this web series that's on Disney Plus now. It's these animated shorts that 
Maybe they were on the internet somewhere. I don't know the origin of this, but it's very bad. It's a very not good. It gets a one out of eight. Like, I am surprised Disney put its name on this thing. <laughs> the animation is worse than those Go Animate things. You know, like you put in text and it spits out like Family Guy animation. It's it's really bad. Like, the bodies barely move. It's almost like clutch cargo level. Like, the mouths are animated, but the bodies don't really go anywhere, except they kind of jerk around paper doll joint style. It seems to me like what s someone who was a freshman in college in like 2000, I don't know, about when I was in college, would have made in Flash animation and posted on the internet on their own. Yes, the visual quality is just truly heinous. It does introduce vampires into this equation. So if you are new to the zombie series, remember that the first film incorporated, integrated the human and zombie communities in a town called Seabrook. They had been divided. By the end of the movie, they came together. Zombies 2 introduced werewolves into the mix and just destroyed the pink and green color scheme. R.I.P. Z3 recovers a little bit. It has a little bit more of that color palette back in the mix, but the werewolves kind of made the whole thing like a Twilight mishmash. Yeah, it was like, exactly, bad Twilight knockoff. I, I don't even know what colors they were. I guess like a dark purplish with lots of brown. Great color. But the werewolves whole thing is they have something called the Moonstone, which is this big crystal, and it powers them. Well, it like both powers them, but also like keeps them in check. I don't know. It's hard to understand all the things that the Moonstone does, but it's important to them, and it's a source of power. Yeah, they should have just called it the MacGuffin Stone, because that's pretty much what it is. It, it serves whatever purpose is needed. So, also, something you gotta understand in terms of lore, the zombies, remember, are, are pale, green-haired people. Very distanced from what you might think a zombie is. Dan said they look like the Joker, and sure enough, they do. Because they wear, like, rusty purple clothes, and they have white skin and green hair. So, yeah, Jokers. But they wear these things called Z-Bands, which keep their zombie impulses in check. They, like, give them the good hormones to not go berserk. And this other contribution that this poorly animated web series gave us is the idea that if you plug the werewolf moonstone shards into the z-band it causes some other additional synergistic effect uh, they they used it the the vampires also had crystals they had v crystals and like you could plug all the things together and that's what led to the plot solution of the miniseries it was, it was convoluted but you plug everything together i'm impressed you remember that and it's going to come back here. But I was waiting for the vampires to show up, and, and they were nowhere to be seen. I was disappointed. Uh, don't they expect us to dig this thing up and really be zombies franchise completionists, Dan? Don't they know who you are? Yeah, you've, I feel like 
if they're going to do fan service, they should just go all out. You know, it's like breadcrumbs for those of us who uh, who have who have dug through the muck of everything, you know. <laughs> but let's keep an eye and an ear out and see if we come across any vampires. The other discovery since Zombies 2 is that in prep for this episode, I was listening to the first two Zombies soundtracks and I discovered that there's a bonus track on the Zombies 2 soundtrack called The New Kid in Town, which I think also is the name of the first episode of the animated series of shorts. So I don't know exactly what the connection is between having a bonus track on Zombies 2 that then leads into the animated short series. I don't know. But this this one track, The New Kid in Town, is, is real catchy. And it's sung by one of the werewolves. Right, you sent that to me. And it's definitely separated from the events of the films. Like, it's not clear in this music video. I guess... The, the new person who shows up at the end, who apparently is a cast member from the Descendants films, mm -hmm. he does have like werewolf stuff going on with his eyes. But I don't think the fact that several of the cast members are unhuman creatures really has anything to do with the lyrical content of this song, at least. Yeah, there's a couple of just like in Someday, there's a couple of jokes like within the lyrics about how the subject of the affection might be supernatural in some way, but it's, it's pretty thin. And yeah, the music video is not in the zombies universe necessarily. So it just happens to be, I don't know if it was a credit song or if it was something they recorded afterwards or what, but it, it caught my attention. But now we're back in the true canon. <laughs> the things that matter. <laughs> in Zombies 3 and just as with the first two films we get this animated opening that kind of quickly recaps the story so far and shows us the status quo as it stands so here we go it's the community as I said integrated between humans and zombies and werewolves now and everybody seems to be getting along and our central couple, the zombie boy Zed and the human girl Addison, are in their senior year of high school, and they're getting ready to go to college. Addison has already gotten into college. Zed hasn't yet. And, like, they are on board with being together forever. That's what they state. But they also sing this song that they have some trepidation about the future of their relationship ostensibly because there's like it's not certain yet whether they're both going to get into the school but i don't know i'm sensing some some weariness maybe on addison's part what was your take on the opening of the film dan and where this relationship stands yeah so zombies 2 had this whole thing where there was some implied jealousy from zed to one of the werewolves and also Addison's focus kind of shifted from being a girlfriend to trying to discover her own identity, which is good. You know, it's a, have a have something for your characters to do in each movie. But given that it, it's kind of hard to feel the connection between them. And, yeah, there's that one song that they have where 
it's it's actually it's kind of a funny little standalone that doesn't necessarily need to fit in like you could almost have that as like a precursor for the the rest of the movie but um they're talking about how like you said they're going to be together forever and they just keep barely missing really dangerous things happening to them which adds on to this sense that this thing that they feel is sturdy and permanent and safe is actually very precarious um it's kind of a fun design for for a little number where they're like oh they're gonna fall into a pit and they step over something or something gonna the kids are shooting bows and arrows at archery class and almost hitting them and all sorts of stuff like that right they're doing like three stooges or old fleischer studio cartoon construction site stunt where they're like gracefully moving from obstacle to obstacle but at any given moment it seems like they could be just obliterated right but everyone in the community acknowledges that if Zed wins the big football game that's coming up, zombies can get into college <laughs> and, and monsters can get into college. Like, this seems to be a, a rule that was declared by somebody. But by whom? Why is this just universally accepted? Okay, Zed, you have to be the one. You win this game. And then z monsters, zombies whoever can go to college they kind of try to explain it so the name of the college that i guess everybody goes to is called mountain college and there's something where you can't apply the the college's rule is you can't apply if you are a monster so if you if you qualify in the monster category you're ruled out from the normal application system and schedule however you can be recruited for a scholarship. So I think the idea is that, yeah, he's got to prove it on the field to have a shot. But you're right. It's it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. OK, well, well, thank you for straightening that out. I mean, I guess athletic scholarships are a thing, but rarely is it so cut and dried of you must win this specific game. And one thing I don't know if we've said explicitly here. One of the the charms, perhaps, I guess you could just call it, a, if you wanted to be neutral about it, you could say one of the traits of the zombie movies is that they attempt to comment upon racial inclusion. That is a central theme of both of the zombie movies. Right. It's the main thing. It's like the raison d'etre. And... I personally found the first zombies to be so ham fisted with its commentary on racism that it actually circled back into hilarious zombies too was a little more nuanced. And if we're going to extend that, I think there was maybe some attempt to comment on the fact that uh, people of color tend to be very underrepresented in higher education in general. And the zombies have sort of been the stand-in for minorities. But athletes at D1 schools are more likely to be people of color, particularly for like football and basketball, compared to the rest of the student population. So it's possible they were like leaning on that social dynamic in modern society when they designed this plot point. But if so... They didn't really set it up in a way to be kind of very effective or clever. Sure. 
And as I said the last time we discussed this franchise, like, each group is already so perfectly racially diverse that it kind of waters down its own commentary. And even more than that, something that you pointed out is having dangerous monsters be a representation for minorities kind of undercuts your message inherently. That's true, too. But it's like, I mean, the the humans already very, very racially diverse and we're focused on a cheer team, which is like orientationally diverse. And then in the second one, we got a werewolf group that was kind of presented as being indigenous like a population that was already in being the real natives of the Seabrook area, but they too are very racially diverse. And it's like, that's not really how indigenous populations work, but okay. Right. And now we're going to get a a third group here that was kind of teased at the end of the previous film, because just a quick recap of the pivotal events of zombies two the possibility was raised that perhaps addison is a werewolf because as you may remember she has white hair which indicates she is not a human or not fully a human so yeah she's looking for her identity what kind of monster is she and at the very very end of zombies two a meteor went over and her white hair started to glow and during this big pivotal football game that Zed needs to excel at aliens come down in a big spaceship. That's the monster of the week or the monster of the movie, I guess it's aliens. Yeah. And we get a alien invasion pseudo song. I found the music in this one to be kind of downplayed. Like it almost didn't want to be a musical. That was the feeling I was getting. I don't know if you felt any of that Dan. Yeah, I think, I mean, just the music, wasn't really as as tuneful or as memorable. It was just kind of, uh, it was more sung through. Right. It did more recitative stuff. It felt rappier. It was like they maybe they wanted to channel Hamilton a little more or, or something. It, multiple songs, they had kind of like a rap intro or just like a rhythmically spoken get us into the song. But now here we've got Aliens. On the field. And so the the football game can't continue. And Zed's aspirations are interrupted for the moment. And these aliens, well, what defines them? They wear blue jumpsuits. They have white hair, for what it's worth. And they're led by this group of three aliens whose names are Allie, Alan, and Aspen but it's spelled out A hyphen capital letter of the rest of the name. So A hyphen Lan, A hyphen Lee, A hyphen Spen. I kind of like this naming mechanism because it played off the how zombies were Z everything. So now we have A everything. Right. And the werewolves, they all have names that start with W. So it was Willa and Wyatt and stuff like that couple more things about the aliens first of all they appear might be the best moment of the movie we get like a two minute they like all of a sudden the style of the music changes to kind of techno so it's it ends up being fairly similar because you get the kind of uh, same singing style but 
when the aliens are the focus, the background is a little bit more electronica e, and they have this almost K-pop style dance they do, but they also have these masks, uh, like silver masks over their faces, and they're doing these weird dances. And they're they're blue jumpsuits. It's more than just jumpsuits. It's like Star Trek inspired, but kind of this weird angular element to it um, that I thought was really cool. And then the blue is just a unifying thing that's way more striking than anything about the werewolves. So here we have this kind of coherently coded and themed new faction, new species that could introduce. They got a cool sound, a cool look. And I was like, OK, I could vibe with some aliens. I'm here. You're right. They do a much better job of keeping a consistent color scheme. So props for that to these aliens. And then they also have some superhuman abilities. They have a telepathic hive mind that they all share. I don't think they can read minds of, of other people. So it's it's telepathy amongst themselves. So they can be organized and share their mind meld. And then they can also fly, which they call anti-gravity. And I guess that describes it. They can They can hover around. They can fly like Superman. And they announced that they're here to compete in the cheer competition. Because if you forgot, like, a key important driving force in society is the importance of cheerleading. And being able to fly is just a game-breaking superpower when it comes to cheerleading. I guess so is having a hive mind. And... One other thing that we should point out is that one of the main aliens is gender neutral. Maybe you'd say non-binary. So, yeah, not not really commented on. And I don't know if this is to say that the aliens have three genders or or what it's to say, really. But this person is in a prominent role. The actor's name is Terry Who, which... Honestly, I don't know if that's like a stage name. It almost seems like the name that you would make up for a person without gender. Yeah, I, I read a little bit about Terry Who, and they are actually one of the more prominent non-binary actors. And this was actually like kind of a big deal. They're, they're being cast in this movie as a non-binary character being a non-binary actor. And yeah, it's it's not really uh, I don't know. I didn't even really realize all the other characters were calling them. They all of the aliens are a little bit androgynous. So I, I hadn't really thought too much about it. Probably the least androgynous of them is uh, the guy from High School Musical. The musical, the series is in there. Uh, one of them. Um, but yeah, it is. It's kind of a it's a different flavor. Yeah, just kind of it, it adds some personality to the, the aliens. It's very different from like the werewolves, for example, who like kind of lean into their uh, their indigenous and more gendered coded looks and stuff. Also, the aliens apparently don't normally have emotions. So kind of the Vulcan Spock thing or like Data, the android on Star Trek except they immediately decide to turn their emotions on. Like, it's just something they can switch on and off, and they decide, hey, humans have emotions, so we want to try them out too. And they flip their emotion switch. Well, you know what this had me thinking of, Brian? The robot movie that you showed me, where the robot has to 
Get hormone software. Oh, okay. Yes, robot. The Indian film we discussed. Right. Yeah, you're right. There is quite a bit of similar plot points with that in the mix. And now the aliens are in the town. They're a presence. They're a factor. They're a force. And we have some tension between the aliens and the existing groups. Although, at this point, I no longer believe that there is any xenophobia in this community. I just, I don't buy it anymore. There's not anything keeping groups apart any longer. You've finally smashed any demographic barriers as far as I'm concerned. Movie one, humans think zombies are bad. But by the end, they learn to accept the zombies. Movie two, humans and zombies think werewolves are bad. But by the end, they learn to accept werewolves. Movie three, at the beginning, humans, zombies, and werewolves think aliens are bad. I wonder what the conclusion of this one's going to be, Brian. Right. But Willa and the werewolves, as the most recently welcomed into the fold, are particularly suspicious of these aliens. And so they're trying to dig into the, what are their ulterior motives. Something I thought was interesting is early on in the movie, obviously cheerleading is very important in this society. And there's this beat where Willa the werewolf climbs up on top of a school bus and is leading everybody in a cheer, talking about how, ooh, yeah, Seabrook, we're going to protect our turf. We're going to defeat the other football team who is the Eels in this movie. That's the, the pivotal game that we get to see is between the Seabrook Mighty Shrimp and the Eels from this other school. We do have some good mascot costumes. We get to see the shrimp costume and the eel costume. But the reason I point this out and the reason it stuck out to me is because in cheerleading and in sports more generally, it's kind of a big thing that your team has solidarity and that you're going against some opponent. I mean, that's the nature of competition, right? Is you need to have somebody that you're against just as much as you need to have somebody that you're for. And even this idea, oh yeah, we're gonna, we've got our turf that we're fighting for is kind of antithetical to a series that is so much based on smash all divisions, smash all boundaries, tear it all down, welcome everyone, everyone's the same. At this point, can competition even exist? I feel like the movie fainted towards an interesting idea with this because it starts out that the competition is this other school that we don't know anything about. And then the aliens come and now the aliens are the competition and how like, I don't know, is there a room for, for have competition and have like these, these differences. And it does address this theme of how we kind of relate to each other with the differences, but you're right. It, it feels very odd. Like, they don't really address the competition aspect of it. Like, how can we have cheer? How can we have football where we need to beat up these other people? I, I thought it was going to go that route, but it ended up not really commenting on it at all. But Aspen, the Terry Who character, extends a bit of an olive branch and approaches Zed and says, Hey, I know we messed up your, your football game prospects of getting into college but there is a loophole that if you can prove to the college recruiter that you are exceptional in some other way that'll get you into the school 
And there follows this kind of weird back and forth where the aliens are both artificially helping and hurting Zed's chances of getting into college. Because in some of the scenes, the fact that they are so supernaturally skilled in different fields is setting Zed back. Like, it's harder for him to stand out when they can do all these remarkable things. Uh, but then on the other hand, the aliens use their tech to hack into the grade database for the school and artificially boost Zed's grades, which, like, how is that acceptable? How is that ethical? And how is that going to help him in the long run? Like, those aren't really the grades that he got. Very weird. Yeah, it's a bizarre beat. I don't know what they were going for with it. It's just kind of indicative to me that this plot was like just kind of jerking from place to place back and forth a lot. I felt like they had a beginning and an end in mind in this movie and a lot of it was treading water. Also somewhere in here Aspen expresses romantic interest in Zed which seemed to come about pretty abruptly. You don't get a lot of emotional cues that this is going to happen. Aspen just kind of states it. And other characters are like, well, Zed is in a relationship. And Aspen seems to pretty quickly accept that. I felt like this whole movie, characters just kind of instantly accept things. <laughs> They're told some big change to the status quo is in effect. And they just say, okay, all right, I accept that. <laughs> that beat with the one of the aliens being a romantic interest potential romantic interest of zed is played for laughs it's like a it reminded me of robot actually where it's like they're saying what would someone who doesn't really know what feelings is how would they encounter feelings for the first time what would they think about if they don't know what love is but now they're experiencing it for the first time etc but it also made me wonder like what does bring zed and addison together did to me this this is exactly where the movie should have said, oh, here's the real reason that Zed and Addison are drawn together and tease that out a little bit. But it doesn't. It's just like, nope, sorry, Zed's with Addison and that's that and doesn't really talk about it anymore. Good point. Yeah, that was an opportunity that they let pass by. Especially because they had had that song about how everything's perfect. We don't need to talk about it anymore. We're just going to be together forever. I thought that was paving to something, but I guess not. <laughs> Pretty early on in the movie, we learn, though, that the aliens' real mission is not just to compete in the cheer competition. They've been charged by this person on their view screen that they refer to as the Scout to come to Seabrook because they need to take possession of the most valuable possession. No, it's, it's called the most precious thing. They need to take possession of Seabrook's most precious thing because encoded on whatever this MacGuffin object is, is a map that's going to direct the aliens to their promised land, which they keep referring to as Utopia. They got to get to Utopia and to get there, they got to find a map and the map is on the most precious thing. So they speculate at first that maybe it's this moonstone that powers the werewolves. So, okay, that gives us a reason for there to be conflict between the werewolves and the aliens because the werewolves obviously need the moonstone. But now the aliens are trying to take it. Although at one point the aliens are like taking possession of the moonstone 
and they find out that it seems to be incompatible. They can't use it. Like when they are trying to use it, it's kind of kryptoniting them. It's it's hurting them. It's causing their other tech to malfunction. And so they retreat back up to their spaceship. And their spaceship is RuPaul. <laughs> like that's the voice of their ship computers is drag queen RuPaul. That's their mothership. They call, call it mothership. But notable... When they put out the call to get beamed aboard and all the aliens get voiped up to the hovering spacecraft, Addison gets sucked aboard too. Because, turns out, she's an alien. She call her a hyphen Didison. Oh, good one. I didn't put that together. But yeah, she's got an A name, doesn't she? And I don't know if we had heard it said before, but I guess her last name is Wells. So good alien last name. Obviously, you got H.G., you got Orson. Wells's are, are are fittingly alien. Yeah, I didn't catch that. That's interesting. One of my favorite things about this movie, Zombies 3, is that they also named-dropped Zed's surname more than the first two movies combined. You get to hear Zed Necrodopolis multiple times. You like that, Necrodopolis? I do. <laughs> and, of course... Fittingly for Addison's character, but pretty much anybody in this community, she just accepts that she's an alien right away. Oh, okay. This is what I am. Thought I was a werewolf last time, but I'm an alien. It is helped along because it turns out that the scout who's been giving these instructions to the aliens is Addison's grandmother. Really big movie for Addison. She solved racism for a third time and became an alien. <laughs> Some big life events there. Yeah. She did it, Brian. She solved racism again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, man, I wish I had pulled a specific quote like you did in our last episode. But like at the very beginning of the movie, the aliens show up and Addison has something that she says to everybody that she's like, OK, guys, you need to accept the aliens. And everybody's like, oh, OK, guys, we need to accept the aliens. And, like, the werewolves are reticent at first. They're a little reluctant. But still, you get the sense that Addison is, like, the final word on what do we accept in this community. And she's always going to say accept everyone. And everybody is going to ultimately come around to that viewpoint. That's how the world works here. You, you do what Addison says, and Addison says it's cool, so it's cool. She's the white-haired savior of everyone. <laughs> It is kind of interesting, though, how from the first movie to the third movie, it became more of a theme for her to kind of discover her own identity. I spent maybe three minutes trying to think about, like, what was the overarching theme or lesson of Addison's search for her own identity? And, like, I got a headache and my nose started bleeding when I tried to parse it out too much. It's just too stupid. It's just fucking aliens and zombies and shit. So, like... You know, trying to project too much metaphor on the, the racial commentary here is not very productive, although it just kind of works on like a very high and broad level. It's like, here are aliens. They're literally aliens, which, you know, I sh should point out that, uh, you know, aliens is also a, a term for someone who is not of your country. And oh, by the way, the way that their planet died was from climate change. 
and nobody cared enough about climate change to speak up against it. <laughs> so now they're going to search for their own planet where they can be the advocates for climate change. Wonder what that's going to end up being. But man, yeah, it's just kind of like a whole slurry of, uh, I don't mean this in a negative way, of like wokeisms, just like all mashed together. Yeah, it's every left wing bullet point. Is it in the mix now? Because, yeah, if if the last movie was indigenous populations, now it's there's some immigrant stuff. Also, this is not super important, but all the aliens get beamed aboard the ship, which is hovering over the city like District 9 or Independence Day. It's up there, you know, in the low atmosphere hanging. So one presumes that the only way to get up there is being beamed. That's how the aliens did it. But somehow Zed walks in. And I don't know how he did that. <laughs> I don't know how he got in there. He's like, oh, Addison, I followed you. I wanted to make sure nothing happened. But how? How did he get up there? I'm not sure. He's tall. Maybe he jumped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he just he just reached up there and, and pulled himself in. He is very tall. Tall boy and what's your name, as you <laughs> referred to our, our central stars at one point. That's right. But through discussion with the holograms of this grandma, the alien scout, Addison comes to the conclusion that the most precious thing the aliens are looking for must be the trophy for the cheer competition, which I guess the aliens crafted at some point in the past on Earth. So, you know... Aliens built the pyramids. Aliens built the ziggurats in South America. I guess they also built the Seabrook cheer trophy. Naturally. And so now either the Seabrook team needs to win or the alien team needs to win the cheer competition so that they can take possession of this mineral that's in the trophy and use it to give them the map, I guess. Also, I think there's discussion of, like, they need fuel... So I think they're also looking for a power source, but they got to win the cheer competition. That's the excuse. But remember, the werewolves have been scheming against them, and they find out that they're trying to steal the most precious thing, which gets said a lot of times. Most precious thing. It seemed a little goofy to me, a little unwieldy. We're, we're getting Gollum territory here. <laughs> I didn't make my precious. Yeah, that's pretty good. But... The werewolves snitch to the Z Patrol, which I don't think we heard the term Z Patrol in the second film. You may remember that in the first movie, Addison's dad is the lead anti-zombie cop. There's this law enforcement organization that their whole thing is keeping the zombies on their side of the town, behind their wall, and this is who the Z Patrol is. But the Z Patrol still exists which seems super incredibly offensive to me if we're going to say that the zombies are welcome in the community, but actually you still call your police force the Z Patrol. Interesting. I wonder if that was somewhat intentional and in like how, you know, law enforcement is increasingly distrusted by people of color, people on the outside, and how that that's kind of still a thing there. But it's it's pretty blatant to have it be an anti-zombie police force that's like prowling the streets. Yeah, it's like if the KKK were, you know, out and about. <laughs> K-Force, K-Patrol. Yeah, 
Exactly. But I guess they're still wearing their anti-zombie bigotry on their sleeves. <laughs> oh, another thread that's going on, though. Zed's still trying to get into college. He's got this interview lined up with a recruiter. Remember, he's got to prove he's exceptional to get in now. And we get my favorite song in the movie, which is called Exceptional Zed. And it's the whole community working to pump up Zed and get him psyched for this interview. I was smiling during this song. Because one, as always, the choreography is really good. I talked about it in the Teen Beach movies. And we definitely get some good dance moves here. Dancing crowds, everybody very polished in their dance moves. But also in this song specifically, we get some long, uncut takes. And it's like all the various community members coming up to Zed and delivering their pump-up line and then receding into the background again. So he's walking forward through the town and everybody's running up to him like, what did they call those things in like the, the days when the office was on TV? They had lip dubs. Do you remember lip dubs, Dan? No, what are lip dubs? Okay, so it was uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan did a big one. I remember there was one that they used as the opener for an episode of The Office, but it was like a camera goes through some large communal space. So like a town square or in the office, it's, it's the office building and the camera's moving along and various people come out to lip sync and dance to a song. And then like once their line is done, they move out of the shot again, but the camera keeps on moving and it's a demonstration of, oh, wow, they must have practiced a long time to do this because everybody has to be on the ball because there are no cuts. Mm -hmm. And that's what this song is like. And I was impressed. You know, you have Addison's parents. They have lines. We have the football coach who we had in kind of a minor role in the second one. He was a, an ice cream salesman because the second one wasn't really about football. That was prominent in the first movie. The second one was more of an election movie. But anyway, the coach is there. He's hyping up Zed. The coach's mom. Oh, Bucky, the villain from one and two, who is definitely underplayed here. Doesn't have much to do, but he's here in the song with a line. And I, I just really liked it's catchy. Oh, Zed's little sister gets to sing. I don't think we'd had her sing in the first two movies. Yeah, no, this was up there for me, too. This was a fun one. I was vibing. And then at the end, there's a giant Zed puppet. They have like a parade and there's this big goofy looking green and rusty pink puppet. I want to know where this thing is. I hope it's sitting in a warehouse. You would get that green puppet if it were on Craigslist. I would. That's exactly right. Yeah. But all the things come together. Zed has his interview and I don't know. There's this thing where... Addison's new alien abilities are messing with his Z-band. And so he's like starting to zombie out a little bit, which, if you'll recall, kind of makes them like the Hulk. They get super strength. But he's able to rein it in enough to still leave a mostly positive impression on this recruiter. Although it's left up in the air until a little later. Did he get in or did he not get in? We have our big cheer competition, but the aliens get disqualified. I guess because they have been scheming to take the trophy. This was unclear to me why exactly they got disqualified. I spent a fair amount of this movie confused. <laughs> but they get hauled off for a little while. But luckily, remember, Addison's a really good cheerleader. So the Seabrook team wins. They get the cup. 
they take it up to the spaceship and say, hey, here it is, the most precious thing. Here's your map to go to the planet that you need to find. Only the aliens scan it, and they're not getting the readings they need to get. It turns out the trophy is not the map. It's not the most precious thing. Because Addison herself is the most precious thing. It's like the Horcrux twist in the last Harry Potter book. Harry Potter's the Horcrux. Addison's the Horcrux this time, though. Right. Okay, I can kind of accept that because, yeah, the she'd be precious to the grandma and the grandma's the one in charge. So, okay, this this works for me. But the implications mean that the aliens have to take Addison with them to the planet that they're looking for because she's their star map. It's in her DNA. And they're like, well, okay, extract a, a hair of my DNA and then, hey... We learned from Jurassic Park that that's all you need to, to get the information. But apparently, no, we can't just do that. We need to constantly have it plugged into the system or something like that. So, Oh, man, good point. Yeah, you, you, they could just take some DNA. But yeah, they say they need her with them. And Addison immediately says, yeah, okay. <laughs> Addison is the most accepting person in the cosmos. <laughs> But, I mean, Zed obviously has been working the whole movie because it's important to him that they go to college together. It was up in the air whether he was going to get to go to the college. Finally, he impressed the interviewer. He finds out he is going to get to go to the college. And at a drop of a hat, Addison says, okay, I'll go to space and never come back. Like, I think Zed has got to be looking at options here. <laughs> yeah. That's my read on the situation is he's he's got to find a backup. There's a little more context to it. I mean, it's we know that Addison has been kind of hunting for her identity, the the people that she feels most connected with and that that's like the most important thing to her. And I feel like there's also a thing where the aliens needed to survive. So, of course, she would sacrifice herself to let the aliens survive. She's the white savior after all. But yeah, it's it's a plot contrivance, no no doubt. So some unspecified amount of time passes on the addison free earth the school year draws to a close everybody's graduating yeah and uh important thing here is after she decides to go we we get a shot where we see zed looking longingly up into the sky and i said out loud don't you dare don't you fucking dare and then he started singing I know it might be crazy, but did you hear? It's like they have to reprise the Someday song every every movie, I guess. It's a requirement now. Right. The the love ballad from the first movie, which I still think is the best scene in the whole franchise. It had really good choreography and the way the scene was set up. Yeah. Just the use of lighting in that. It's like a peak that they didn't really reach at any other point. Right. But this one's kind of weird because they get all of the different characters to sing a line from the song. And a couple of them kind of make sense. It like goes from a love song to a unity song, which, OK, you know, that's like what the Toy Story series did is they took the song that was originally about one thing and they recontextualized it. That being, of course, you've got a friend in me that meant the, the lyrics of you got a friend in me meant a very different thing by Toy Story 3 than they did in the first five minutes of Toy Story 1. So sure, that's fine. But they're still like singing about 
a girl and a zombie being in love. Like there are lyrics that are explicitly about that. So it was still kind of odd. Right. But I guess the meaning, the significance of it is that that union, that coming together is what inspired all the communities to come together over the course of the trilogy. So that's why everybody feels a connection to this couple. Right. It's like the, the crucible or something. Right. Something I didn't say, Zed did offer to go to space on the spaceship, but the aliens told him that wasn't going to work because apparently non-alien beings can't travel through hyperspace. They say they don't have stardust <laughs> in their veins or somewhere in their body. The aliens have stardust in them, and that's why they can do the faster than light travel without their bodies being destroyed. Bear that in mind. But back on the spaceship, they scan Addison. Who knows how long they've been up there, how far away from Earth they got. But they find out that the planet they're being pointed to, the utopia they're looking for, is Earth. They're supposed to be in Seabrook. That's where they need to go. And so they immediately turn around and come back. So one, this is really convenient. Two, this is really stupid. <laughs> because why did the grandmother hide a map to Earth on Earth? <laughs> That's a good point. I hadn't thought about it that way. And so it was... The, so the grandmother already told them to go to Earth to find this map that was going to point them to Earth. But she already pointed them there. So it, this is all pointless. Yeah, I kind of like where it, how it ends thematically. It's like it basically ties a bow on this idea that Seabrook has been kind of the point at which the tides have changed and things are improving. And, and it also kind of deconstructs the idea of a utopia. Is a utopia a place where there's no conflict or is utopia a place where you can have conflict but still collaborate and be yourself and work together to resolve those conflicts and stuff. And so it does kind of tie everything together thematically, but you're right. Plot wise, it's a head scratcher. But the key point is that Addison is back now. So she and Zed can go to college together. Yeah. And she's blue hair and a words still. <laughs> That's right. We get, like, a double ending here. So we, we have an animated outro as a capper on the series, potentially. And we find out that, okay, the aliens are welcome now. But also, the town, like, puts out feelers. I don't know, they're sending out telegrams to every possible monster species. Just bring all the supernatural immigrants in. The walls are down. Open the floodgates. And so the vampires are here. We get like a little comic book splash panel. I've been waiting the movie. I wanted the miniseries to be acknowledged. And sure enough, the first bonus monster we get is the vampires are, are in the mix. Uh, and also mermaids, because why not? We see some mermaids. I really, really liked this idea. And I feel like they didn't push it to its potential. Like, I feel like they should have had seven different monster species that they brought in and each of them should have like even in this little animation should have had their own color scheme 
And so that I could imagine what all of these future sequels hypothetically would be like. Were there more zombies movies? I agree. Because this is the teaser of maybe Zombies 4. Probably not, but maybe. If this gets racks up the Disney Plus views. But yeah, there should have been way more monsters. We need robots and invisible people. Just all kinds of things. Mummies. Right. Also, there was a the final number in the movie is called Nothing But Love. And it's all the groups dancing together. And I think this should have happened after this intro of all the additional creatures. And we should have had dancing vampires and mermaids at the very least. Oh, man. It's like here pops out a, a vampire. Turns out vampires dress all black and use V words. Oh, wait. Here's a mummy. Mummies use M words and they all have uh, gray. That's their color. Something like that. Yeah, that would have been fun. Right. They just should have all been dancing and singing in this final number. But then we get a, another another ending, like a mid-credits, post-credits scene where Bucky, the narcissistic former cheer captain, boards the RuPaul UFO, the RuFO, and he hijacks it and takes it to space. He says he's going to spread cheer to the corners of the galaxy. <laughs> Only we were just told 10 minutes ago that non-alien beings can't take the spaceship <laughs> so is he dead now <laughs> or i guess he's addison's cousin right that would have been a, a really funny like what if they had had that and then it just showed him hyperspacing and then melting into a puddle onto the ground or like his eyes smoking or maybe he gets like the uh, the treatment from the end of raiders of the lost ark when he goes into hyperspace that would have been an ending for <laughs> zombies 3 yeah, I mean, that's what I was expecting, was an Indiana Jones villain ending. Like, Kate, Kate Blanchett getting her eyes burned out. But you're right, he's a cousin, and I don't know if... I can't remember, do they ever hint that maybe he's part alien too? Because wouldn't he have the same grandmother? Maybe so, I guess. I guess, there we go, we solved it, so... We collaborated and we figured it out, so I guess it makes sense. I was, I was expecting he was gonna be like drinking from the wrong grail yeah and that's zombies 3 at length i didn't know that i'd have that much to say about it but i did and yet i still feel like i've only said a few of the things that i felt as i watched this movie <laughs> so what do you think dan do we want to dive into our second film so that we cover all of that before we hit some more zombies talking points or do you want to suss out a little bit more i don't know let's let's finish our zombie three zombies three thoughts and then we can head over to Scream. So what are some, some other things that are on your mind, Dan? Yeah, just I'm kind of glad that it's very clear that they decided to embrace their campy potential and just make everything as weird and stupid as it could be. And, you know, the plot points are here and there and the music is not the most memorable out of the series. Looking back, other than a couple of tracks, I'm not sure the, the Zombies series in general had specific tracks that I'll be wanting to revisit all that often. There's a couple of them, but anyways, just all the color is back and it's weird and it culminates in just this totally exaggerated version of everything that had been leading up to. And the choreography is still really fun. The, the production design and costumes and colors and 
lighting and stuff is just like through the charts weird, sometimes garish, sometimes kind of cool looking, sometimes just like bizarre juxtaposition of all these things together. Just a really visually interesting film that even if it lost its sharp identity of the first one, this whole time I didn't know what the next scene was going to look like. And that was just kind of exciting to me that it could have all these weird, bizarre, kind of ugly ways of looking that were still kind of interesting and fit together for me. Uh, I, and I, I really liked the the alien aesthetic. Everything about it was kind of cool for me. Like when they were up in the spaceship, it was kind of 2001E, lots of symmetry, lots of like bright white walls with like lines of windows and, and stuff. And I, I feel like the werewolves even came into their own a little bit more. Like I kind of felt like their more militant approach was carved out a little bit more clearly for me this time. Although I did notice, did you notice that they always talked like they had fake teeth in their mouth that couldn't really hear what they're saying because they they didn't do a good job of like getting fake teeth that allowed them to actually speak? I was like, you very clearly just have dumb fake werewolf teeth in your mouth right now. And you're as you speak, I, I know that that is why you are having trouble speaking. I did notice that Wyatt... And Winter seemed to struggle with that the most. Willa is a little more adapted to it. And luckily, she's the one who has the most lines. But Wyatt, yeah, was really struggling. Yeah. But yeah, I can see that the first two movies were leading to this. Right. You can really feel the trajectory. And I think this met the benchmarks of what it needed to be. Like, it does feel like the culmination of the of the journey. Yeah. No, I agree. And the three movies do kind of come together into a whole. It reminds me a little bit of the Spy Kids trilogy where like I didn't exactly like all three Spy Kids movies, but I kind of appreciated how they together added up to something. And I feel like the Zombies movies are kind of the same way in that regard. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think you're right. So do we want to rate this one at this point or do we want to do that at the end? Do we want to save our is it good? Why don't we go ahead and rate it now? And then we can head to Scream 5. Okay, Dan. Well, since we've dug through our feelings a bit, do you want to decide, is it good, before we move on to our second movie on our bill of fare this evening? Sure, let's do it. So, is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from a very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating... A tour de good, which is an eight out of eight. And so, Brian, I guess it comes to me first. I will answer is Zombies 3 good. It's not a good movie, but it's the kind of not good movie that I had a good time watching and will be thinking a lot about and will probably watch again at some point. So maybe that is a good movie. I don't know. But then there's enough stupid stuff in it. And just the overall cheesiness factor of it does feel like in some ways it's like a, a detriment to the overall quality of of what it's trying to do. But I'm glad that it kind of embraced its campiness. You know, bringing in RuPaul to me is a sign that you kind of know that you're over the top in what you do. And even if it's not very coherent, it's always going somewhere and doing something. And yeah, the choreography's fun and the stars are pretty likable, pretty solid cast, all that. I'm going to say it's a good-ish movie. 
just because I don't really know what it is. And so since I don't know what it is, it's goodish. That's what it is. Okay. What about you, Brian? I'll say at times watching this, I felt pretty down on it. Like my little meter gauge was was pretty far down there. But you know what? Well, I love the song Exceptional Zed. I've played it many times since I watched this movie. I can't get over that giant puppet. <laughs> As with other DCOM musicals, the choreography is really exceptional, and all these trained child actors are great at pulling it off. It makes me want to check out the Descendants franchise. So that boosts it some. And what's boosted it more is our discussion here and how you've really made me convinced that it is the things it needed to be. Like, it does feel like the previous films led to it and like a decent cap-off for the series. This, to me, is in pretty firm three territory. Not not good. The plot is messy enough and the twists are weak enough that that's that's where it's at for me. Three out of eight. And I don't know how long it's going to be before I revisit this one. Probably a while. But I'm glad we watched it. And I'm glad to have this little preview of Halloween. Oh, yeah. We get a little bit of spooky season early. For sure. Because what's our next film, Dan? We've we've talked about it already. We've We've said what the title is. But are we ready to now talk about the film? Yeah. So, Scream 2022 also known as Scream 5, or 5 Cream, if you will. Yeah, we've been saying 5 Cream in our chat window, which is Scream, but the S is a 5. Yeah, and they actually released merch that said the word 5 Cream. They leaned into it when the movie was uh, debuting. <laughs> but yeah, so this this movie came out in 2022 as well. But it came out in, I think, January, so it was an early movie. But I think it, it exceeded expectations on both box office and critical reception. It felt like a January dump at the time, but it, I think it made pretty solid money, and it got like a 80-plus percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So I do know that a sixth one has been greenlit, and I will talk about that towards the end here. But obviously, the first four screams were all directed by Wes Craven, I think is how you say his name. Uh, but he passed away in 2015. Uh, so he obviously could not make the fifth Scream movie. His, his last feature film was actually Scream 4 in 2011, if I'm not mistaken. So they had to bring in someone new for the direction. And they brought in a team that goes by the name Radio Silence. Uh, which I think is like a group of two or three or four collaborators who always work together directing stuff. Uh, I don't know what else they've done. I just read that. But the two credited directors as individuals are Matt Bet Bettinelli Open is one of them, and the other is Tyler Gillett. So I, I you know I don't know who these people are, but they're replacing Wes Craven. But the producer and I think creative guide or something was Kevin Williamson, who wrote the first Scream movie. And I think he was pretty involved in coming up with the Scream 5 story, whereas he had tapped out of at least one of the previous sequels. So, And so Scream 5 
opens uh, with one of the one of the kind of uh, calling cards of the Scream franchise is an actress in I think it's usually an actress. It might be one where it's the lead character in the first scene is male, but gets called on the phone by the killer of the movie, who is Ghostface. And subsequently, we know as soon as this call starts that Ghostface is going to be in the house or in the location and going to be popping up and stabbing whoever gets that first phone call. And sure enough, this one actually very closely mimics the very first scream where it's inside a house. It's a young woman gets a call on the landline, but it's kind of here updated with all sorts of 2022 touch points. There's references in the phone call because the, the, of course, Scream is the most meta of horror series. And so there's always got to be discussion of the fact that it's horror. And so they talk about elevated horror, which is kind of the hot thing in horror right now. The A24 style where it's the, the horror things are usually a metaphor for something else. And there's some attempts at uh, artistic uh, endeavors as opposed to just scares and kills. Right. Elevated horror like Zombies 1, 2, and 3. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Horror with a message. <laughs> that is kind of funny, though, because some of the things I just said, you could kind of say qualify zombies as elevated horror, which zombies is about as far from elevated horror as anything could be. But yeah, eventually this this actress who is we come to learn is a character named Tara Carpenter gets stabbed and mutilated by Ghostface in this opening scene. But one thing that's different is she does not die. She survives. And the main character this time is actually Tara's sister, played by Melissa Barrera. And her name is Sam. And turns out that she is alienated from her sister and from her family. But when her sister almost dies, she goes and reconnects with her sister. And we learn pretty early that Sam, the main character, isn't just a nobody, but is in fact the secret daughter of Billy Loomis, who you might recall as the non-Matthew Lillard killer from the first Scream 1. So another gimmick of the Scream movies is they're kind of whodunits where you know it's a character we know in a mask, but you don't know which character it is. But it's always two characters and not one character, which kind of explains how it seems like the killer could be in more places than is humanly possible. But yeah, so this is Billy Loomis's daughter. And the name of the actor who played Billy Loomis in Scream 1 is Skeet Ulrich. I'm a fan of anybody whose first name is Skeet. So I was glad to see Skeet Ulrich back back in action. He he gets some like de-aging CGI and appears as kind of like a force ghost to Sam because there's a thing that's kind of played up where she kind of has the psycho DNA in her head. So she has visions. And one thing I thought that they were going to do for maybe just a couple minutes, but they didn't go down this route is basically lean into this idea and like really make Sam be an unreliable narrator. So some of the things she's seen isn't actually what's happening. I feel like if you're going to play up that your character has visions, that could have been an interesting payoff. Right. This kind of threw me for a loop. I was expecting it to be a bigger deal than it was that she is hallucinating Skeet Ulrich. Yeah. Anyways. But like, how did Tara 
survive. Did, did Ghostface just stop? It kind of cuts away. Did something interrupt him? It just cuts away. She gets she gets she gets really wrecked. Yeah, she gets she does get it pretty bad. <laughs> like in this movie, I was struck repeatedly how gruesome they were able to get with the effects because Ghostface like stomps on her leg and her ankle splinters and he stabs through her hand and it just makes a mess. Like she got it pretty bad and nothing, as I said, called him away. It seems like he would have gotten the job done. But then the next thing we hear is she's in the hospital and she's not dead. Yeah. I mean, I guess what we're supposed to think is that Ghostface then kind of ran away or whatever and presumed that, that Tara had died. Well, we're we're going to find out that you don't want to presume. Yeah. It's a got to get the job done. It's a recurring thing. Yeah. But I also want to point out she got messed up real bad. And so I feel like there's a thing later on where she is suspected of being the ghost face, Tara. If you're going to like stage something, which I know has been a recurring thing throughout the Scream series as like a way to mask that you are actually the killer is to fake some sort of injury. You're not going to do it to yourself this bad or like your ghost face partner. You're not going to rough up this bad, you know, so I feel like they could have pretty safely ruled her out as the killer. But yeah, so she survives, reconnects with Sam. Sam has this boyfriend who's named Richie, who's kind of driving her around. And basically they decide that Ghostface is attacking people who are connected to the original Scream 1 murders. And remember, there's an extra meta element on this because in the Scream universe, in the sequels, the events of the Scream movies that we have seen have been made into in-universe movies called the Stabs. And in here, we are up to uh, eight Stab movies. And But they determined that the attacks, because there are subsequently a couple more attacks, are all somehow related to the very first Stab movie, or as we recognize it, the first Scream movie. So Sam, our main character assumes that she is a central target for Ghostface because she is the daughter of Billy Loomis. Right. This boyfriend, Richie, is played by the protagonist of the TV show The Boys on Amazon Prime, which I have just started watching. And so that's what I recognized him from. He's got off-putting energy to him, a kind of weird energy. It reminded me a little bit of um, Alfie Allen, who plays Theon Greyjoy in the Game of Thrones series, which will be my connection. It's not actually the same actor, but he kind of looks like him and has kind of the same weird energy to him. I see. In The Boys, he plays kind of a geek, which is what he's playing here, too. Okay. I thought it was funny. They've got him as kind of an outsider to the Stab franchise. He's like getting caught up as he's driving her around the town. Right. He's watching YouTube essays and stuff. Right. Because, well, that's kind of the new bend that this one adds. They always want to try to be kind of rooted in the time that they come out and comment on on developments in the film community. But to that point, one of the biggest flaws of this movie for me is they make a big deal about how it's a requel, which is basically a reboot and a sequel that happens a far time in the future where you 
reconnect the original characters, but you essentially rebooted around a new cast. So in other words, we got the Star Wars Episode 7 treatment here. Except that was the exact premise of Scream 4. I mean, there's a minor variation on it here, but that's you're pretty much redoing the same thing. And I'm going to spoil Scream 4 here, so jump ahead 30 seconds if you don't want to hear what happens in Scream 4. The main protagonist of that one ends up being one of the killers. And so like they couldn't really do a continuity out on that. Also, we're another 10 years in the future from that. So I guess they had to do a re-requel. And I felt like they were hitting the same jokes and the same themes that they did. Like, hey, what if this whole thing is just a reboot of all those murders? But that was the same year he did those jokes. I, I don't know. I was a little disappointed by that. Yeah. The difference to me is that in four, it was very much about social media. And the person was killing for social media clout because it's 2011 and Instagram is big. Then in this one, this is maybe spoilers, but it's about toxic fandoms. Right. It's about the fans should be able to steer the way that franchises go. And how dare the directors not listen to the fans. Right. Yeah. So it's it's like a different take on it. But I guess the setup of of it is still the same, even if like the specific themes it pulls out of it is kind of different. Right. The idea of how can we still be going back to the same franchises decades later? So, yeah, at some point, the old stalwarts from the Scream series who are now, you know, in their upper 40s, early 50s, man, maybe even older than that. I'm not sure are are brought out. And uh, we that the three main ones being Dewey who is played by David Arquette, Gail, Gail Weathers, played by Courtney Cox, a.k.a. Monica from Friends, and Sidney Prescott, who is the quote-unquote final girl from the first Scream and basically all the other Screams then, played by Nev Campbell. And the first one we see is Dewey, and the Gail-Dewey romance is one of the recurring threads throughout the Scream series, which I I never cared even remotely about. But I do feel like David Arquette, I never thought was good in any of the movies, but here he's actually pretty good. He's kind of charming and he's got a little more presence. He actually leaves an impression for the first time here. He's been put through the ringer. He got divorced from Courtney Cox. IRL and in the movie. Yeah. I didn't even think about that real life parallel aspect, but you're definitely right. But... Yeah, I mentioned Star Wars Episode 7. Well, what happened in Star Wars Episode 7? I'm about to spoil that, too. I assume at this point I can talk about the things that happened in those without anybody being upset. Han Solo gets killed. And so you kill one of the three leads of your previous time frame story. That's exactly what happens here, too. So Dewey gets killed partway into the uh, the movie. And so that's our one kind of tragic death of, of a, a longtime character from the series. And I mean, it was time because <laughs> look at any other slasher franchise. And usually the main folks don't last more than like two movies. It's like if you survive one, you're probably going to die in the next one. So Scream was an outlier in that regard. We had four movies where the core people survived. Yeah, I feel like Halloween, Jamie Lee Curtis's character sticks around. Right. So Laurie stays around. That's about it. The rest of them don't. 
right around the time that Dewey dies, we get again uh, Nev Campbell and uh, Courtney Cox to reappear, and you know, whatever. I'm gonna like I respect the pressures that Hollywood puts on women to remain looking young, but man, Courtney Cox has some gnarly plastic surgery. It's like I, I she really did not have normal human expressions to my eyes because of like all of the plastic surgery that she's clearly undergone. She did make some weird shapes with her lips. Yeah. And Nev Campbell, on the other hand, might be more beautiful than she's ever been. Like she's aged extremely gracefully on the other hand. But yeah, that was, I wanted to make a, a, a mean spirited joke where the scariest thing in this movie was Courtney Cox's plastic surgery. But I guess I have now made that joke, even even if I ultimately decided it was a little too tasteless for me to make. So <laughs> one scene here in the middle of the movie that was easily my favorite of the movie is one of the teen friends. His mom dies by Ghostface and Ghostface is like, I'm going to get your son next. And so then we cut to the son and he's like taking a shower and making lunch. And no joke, there's like a four and a half minute scene of him just making lunch, getting out of the shower, getting dressed, walking around his house. And the movie goes out of its way to like have doors open and close where you would expect Ghostface to pop out. But he just just keeps not popping out. It just goes on and on and on. And I really liked that the movie had the commitment to do this scene this long without having Ghostface pop out. And every time it sets up the jump scare, like it does the the string note, the building mm-hmm. tension string note that there's about to be a jump and it keeps the door closes or he looks in the mirror and nothing happens. I thought this was just a phenomenal piece of little subversion that that was really impressive. And this dude is Dylan Minnette, who pops up a couple places. Oh, yeah. He was the guy in 13 Reasons Why. OK. Uh, he was the older brother in the. The terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day movie. Okay. Uh, he's He pops up from time to time. So I, I recognize this guy too. And then he gets stabbed through the neck. Slowly. You see the knife go into the neck and then out the side of the neck once Ghostface finally stops edging us. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned it earlier. I want to point out, absolutely, this has the most brutal killings of the scream franchise by far lots of like slow stabs through body parts and stuff and yeah lots and lots of blood spraying everywhere pooling out and like when dewey dies he gets got real good yeah he gets like gutted it's like the knife goes in and then up and then to the side and he's like trying to make a phone call, but he he doesn't get to. Yeah. He's just spilling all over the place. But his death in particular was a little bit stupid because he shot Ghostface and then they ran away. And then he's like, wait, I got to go do the double tap. You guys go downstairs. I'm going to go do the double tap now. Goodbye. And it's like, if you were going to do the double tap, you probably shouldn't have spent 15 seconds explaining that you were going to go do it. And Ghostface just gets up and stabs Dewey. By the way, like after you shot Ghostface, you probably could have taken the mask off too. It would have taken you a half a second to rip the mask off. And like, oh yeah, that's who the the killer was. But I don't. I guess that's slasher logic for you. 
True. I'm glad you mentioned the gun, because, yeah, they managed to shoot Goat's face. And I don't remember if that's happened before. I, I think it has. But something I thought was pretty goofy is early on, the friends are talking about, oh, there's a murderer on the loose. And the Dylan Minnette character says, we need to be ready. We need to protect ourselves. We need to buy tasers. And it's like, um, you could buy a gun. <laughs> That's a possibility. It's a thing you could do if you're concerned with self-defense and you want to save yourself from a murderer who has a knife, you know. Uh, that's his worst weapon, is he's got a, a sharp thing. There is something you could do. And then the guy who has the best defense against the guy with the knife is the guy who has a gun. But I guess he's a police officer, so that's why he has a gun. But... Or ex-police officer or something. There's a bit where he's like, Lost a few screws since we last seen him. That being Dewey. Yeah. But Sam, our main character, decides that, hey, Ghostface is hanging around. We just got to separate ourselves from this messed up town and this messed up story and just leave town. And so they go back to the hospital to pick up Tara. They're going to drive away. Um, one Another scene I really liked, another one I would put up there for like the most tense and interesting things that it did from a, a horror perspective was... Tara is kind of running away from Ghostface, and but she we know that like she's got a broken leg and she's been all mutilated, so she's moving really really slowly, and so Ghostface is just kind of very slowly stalking her like in the background and occasionally like getting in her way and knocking her off the wheelchair and stuff. And I thought this was another pretty tense scene. Oh, it was really brutal, because remember she got stabbed all the way through her hand. And she's got to use her hands to move the wheels of the wheelchair because also her foot was all smashed. And just every time she's got to push the wheels forward with her hands, I was cringing. Yeah. So they're going to they're going to get out of Dodge. Uh, Sam and Tara and her boyfriend's going to drive them. But when they leave, they realize Tara doesn't have her inhaler. So they need to go get an inhaler. Well, where does she have an inhaler? There's one at the hospital, but they don't want to go back to the hospital. Well, there's one at her best friend, Amber's. So let's go to Amber's house, pick up the inhaler, and then we'll get out of town. Okay, well, there's two problems with this. One is that Amber isn't just at home. She's hosting a big party, which, of course, scream climaxed with a big house party. And not just that, but the house is the original scream house. So... They're going back. It's like literally the recreated climax of Scream 1. There's even a thing where they're watching the movie that is Stab, which is essentially Scream, on the TV in much the same way that they watch some slasher on the TV and the climax of Scream. So I guess it's clever. It's like it's kind of interesting how it uh, so heavily mirrors the original. It's like really leaning into the requel bit, I guess. Mm hmm. Right. So definitely they've still got some of the same meta aspects. Mm -hmm. It's it's never not meta, but it was a little different from Scream 2 and 3 in the way that it's meta. Like, I don't know, Scream 3 was so out there, like they're in the process of making the movie mm -hmm. and they're on a set of the house. So I do like, I guess, that they've mixed it up somewhat. They're finding other ways to be meta. Right. And of course, once they get to this 
party. Ghostface appears, starts stabbing a bunch of people, and everybody gets there. The uh, Gail and Sydney get over there too, and we eventually learn who Ghostface is. And Ghostface is Richie, the boyfriend, and also Amber, the best friend, which is of note for a couple of reasons. So one, those are the first two characters we saw in the movie other than Tara. Second, well, if you go back to Scream 1, who were the killers? It was the boyfriend of the lead and the host of the the house party. Well, that's what it is here, too, because it's the boyfriend of the lead. That's Richie. And Amber's house is where that party was. And she's the so she's the host again. So that's kind of mirroring Scream 1. And we learn their motivation is basically to create a series of murders interesting enough to inspire a new high quality stab movie after the recent ones have been so terrible and out there. So their idea is they're basically going to frame Sam, the main character, for the murders because she's the daughter of Billy Loomis, who inspired the very first one. That will be enough of a story to make a, a good new stab movie. And so this whole thing is like a commentary on, like you said, toxic fandoms going too far in their sense of entitlement for the, the franchises that they're obsessed with. Yeah, it got me that Richie was actually the killer because he had just been faking that he was just now getting into the series. He has always been into the series. He's the biggest scream slash stab fan that there could be. And like him and Amber met on a stab message board. They're basically Redditors or 4chaners. <laughs> yeah. I think they name drop both sites. On the other hand, you know, I, the Scream movies are, aren't necessarily the best mysteries, qua mysteries, but I felt like these were the single two most obvious candidates to be Ghostface. So. I'm wondering if they were trying to do like the double fake back where like they say, oh, it's these two characters are awfully suspicious. So like now us seasoned viewers are thinking, well, it's probably not the obvious candidates. It's probably someone else when in fact it kind of pivots back to being the obvious candidates. Right. It did feel like Billy from the first one because multiple times Richie did the thing where it's like, Ghostface goes around a corner and then Richie comes out from around the other corner. Yeah, and he's got a little bit of the crazy eyes too. Uh-huh. Which is like, yeah, is something they did with Skeet Ulrich in the first one also. But so this is a little complicated, but so Amber and Richie knew that what's your name? The main girl Sam was the daughter of Billy Loomis. Oh, this is kind of interesting. Sam Loomis is the name of the boyfriend in Psycho from 1960. The namesake of Dr. Loomis, the psychiatrist in Halloween, then the name of Billy Loomis. And, and so now it's kind of come full circle. We've got a Sam Loomis again. Oh, interesting. Yeah, there are a couple of allusions in the names. So like one of the characters is Wes, who, like Wes Craven. And he's the character who dies partway through the movie. And I don't know, it felt like that was kind of a tribute to. Right, right. And Sam and Tara are carpenters and Carpenter made Halloween. Right. But anyway, 
they know, the fans know that Sam is a Loomis, even though she has apparently been trying to hide that. She, I think she says that other people don't know that. Right. So that's why it felt a little cheap. Because it was like, oh, they figured it out. But then the boyfriend, Richie, mentions that she has these hallucinations. Like, I'm pretty sure he said he knows that she has these hallucinations, which, how does he know that? Would she have told him, oh, I hallucinate a serial killer, but she didn't tell him that she's related to a serial killer? I think the former would be more disturbing than the latter. Right. <laughs> like, if you said you were Jeffrey Dahmer's kid, I would be more alarmed to learn that, oh, and he pops up in the mirror and talks to me. <laughs> so she had revealed that bit, but not the, hey, I share some DNA with Billy Loomis. Right. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good point. I, I wonder if that's explained if you go and watch it again. I, it, it did feel like this was the most coherent of the Scream sequels, which... It's not really saying all that much because I think they're a little scatterbrained in general. But yeah, I don't know. That 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 is a little curious. But I guess it all makes sense because ultimately he did already know it because he's been plotting this thing where he was going to frame her for the murders. So I don't know. But that's it. That's, that's Scream 5 or 5 Cream or just Scream, if you will. And I will not. But if you will, just call it by its uh, proper name, which is Scream. And... There is going to be a Scream 6. Apparently it is currently stylized Scream exclamation mark exclamation mark to look like two Roman numerals because it's kind of the second in the requel series, but it's also not actually a two. So I don't know. We'll see what, what they end up on titling this one. But news came out the past couple months that Nev Campbell asked for more money than the Scream franchise was really willing to pay her. So she has been booted from the Scream movies, at least officially. Wouldn't astonish me if she makes a surprise return. But that's the story they're given right now, is that she has been uh, ejected from the, the Scream series. So I don't know. I, I don't really care that much about the Sydney Prescott character, but she has kind of been the main uniting thread of the series, you know, other than Ghostface, I suppose. But like she's she's the main character of the series. So it'll be interesting to see what Scream 6 ultimately looks like. But I'd probably watch it. So obviously we'll have to revisit that whenever that comes out. By that time, we should have Zombies, the reanimated series. <laughs> rumblings that that's on its way. And, and yeah, we'll have to check out, like, the Spy Kids show on Netflix and whatever else Robert Rodriguez is doing, because I'm sure it's going to tie in somehow. Happy Death Day 3, maybe? Yeah. Right, right. But before we move on, is this one good? Right, Brian. Yeah, why don't you go for it, Brian? So, uh, is Scream 5 good? Okay, so for me, this one lands in 4 out of 8 territory. Good-ish. It's another one that I think it did what it needed to do. I can see how we got here from the previous films. It does carry on the banner of commenting on developments in horror media. We've got people on the message boards making YouTube essays, critical, entitled fans. We've also got the artsy-fartsy horror, stuff like Midsommar and Hereditary. 
where it's kind of got a inflated cultural cachet when really we're still, what'd you say, jumping up and stabbing. That's, I mean, that's the nature of the beast. Can't get too hoity-toity about it. But it just, it kind of felt unnecessary. Like, I don't know if we needed to revisit this after 10 years. But, hey, it, it did brisk business at the box office, and we're going to get some more. So we march ever onward. But that's where I'm at. That's how I'm feeling. Four out of eight. What about you, Dan? Nice, yeah. So when I watched it and I wrapped it up, I was feeling very good about a five for this one. A good. Because, you know, I think it's I think it's a well-made movie. It's got some of the scariest kills, some of the most brutal kills, a couple of really memorable scenes that are really well done. I actually like the teens overall. I would spend even more time with these teens. Like, I feel like there's potential for them to develop a little bit more personality and, and, and reappear, which I guess they will in the next one. And I just thought it kind of held together pretty well, although I felt like the killers themselves were kind of underwhelming. And I really felt like it was a retread of the meta elements of the fourth movie. I know that the the theme of the killer, like the motive of the killers ended up being different, but the whole, hey, we're doing a requel, quote unquote requel. I hate the word requel. I don't want to hear that anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was done with it in Scream 4. So now for Scream 5, we get to hear it about 10 times, but I guess they're still talking about it, but. I don't know if they ever actually used that phrase in Scream 4. I can't remember, but it, the same concept. The But when I woke up the next morning after having watched it, I just, I could barely remember anything about the movie. I was like, what? Is, who are the characters? Did I care about them at all? Not really. I enjoyed it while I was watching it, but just very fine, but forgettable. And I couldn't convince myself to give it anything higher than a four. So I'm going to land with you there. I think this is a good-ish movie. And I'm not willing to give it any more love than that. Yeah. Another thing is I had it at a five and then I had Zombies 3 at a four. And I just kept thinking about Zombies 3. And I didn't think once about Scream 5. And I was like, it's kind of weird how the movie that I'm giving the lower rating to, I'm thinking about a lot more than the movie I gave the higher rating to. So maybe I should really just put them in the same bucket and say that one is more competent, but also more forgettable than the other. And I think that's how I would summarize it. Right. Yeah. For whatever reason, the Zombies franchise, I kind of think of as one of like our our pet projects. <laughs> it's like uh, our signature featured films. It's like if the goods as a podcast points you to one thing and it's zombies, I think we've we've done a good day's work. Maybe Max Magician in that boat, too. I don't know. What what is an example of that for you, Dan? Oh boy, uh, you're putting me on the spot here. So, something specific you really hope we've steered additional people to. I'll say Rock of Fire as well. Yeah, no, that, that's a good one. Maybe Teen Beach Movie, which I was pretty passionate about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's Potty Time, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, go spin that one if you haven't yet. Yeah, I don't know what else. I have to think about that. What are Maybe that's a good thing to have in mind. What are... Not necessarily the best movies or the best episodes, but what are the signature The Goods selections over the years now? All right. Well, maybe we love all our children equally. That's kind of how I feel, you know, at least to try to try to give each one my proper attention. But, you know, some of them stick with you. But 
I guess that brings us to the end of our, you know, now that I think about it, this episode in some ways, Brian, is a requel. How does that make you feel? Is it Mumblecore? <laughs> no. So how we are revisiting those ones from a while back, I guess. Their explanation of what constitutes a requel, I struggled to understand. They said it introduced a new cast of characters, but the old people had to show up. And the example they they brought up was Star Wars Episode 7. So I don't know if we've quite had enough time elapsed for that to happen. And I don't see or hear a new cast. I guess the way that I would say that this is like a requel is it's a new, fresh episode that one could listen to on their own. But it builds on the previous one. And it kind of like extends it. So on the one hand, we're like rebooting our analysis of the series, but we're also simultaneously a sequel to the previous one. And I think that that's what a requel is supposed to be is a blend of a reboot and a sequel. Gotcha. Okay. Yes. Then I think it counts. Maybe. Is Zombies 3 elevated horror? Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Because we gave it critical scrutiny, we've elevated it. It's worthy of consideration because we've deemed it so. But what's worthy of our consideration next, Dan? What is the next brainchild we're going to birth into the digital world? So, Brian, one thing that there's a movie that I've been wanting to rewatch for a while and something that briefly came up in our discussion of The Great Race. Is that what that movie was called? The Great Race? Right. Was the... George of the Jungle animated series. And, you know, I kind of feel like I've done a bunch of trivial picks in a row, but you know what? It's summer. I can do what I want. I'm going to bring George of the Jungle, the Brendan Fraser vehicle, based off of the animated TV show. And then also, Brian, there is a sequel, George of the Jungle 2, that I will be chasing down and, and watching as well. Well, Dan, what about the other 1990s Jay Ward adaptation starring Brendan Fraser? The 1999 Dudley Do-Right film. Did that also star Brendan Fraser? Brendan Fraser also. Oh, man. Well, you know what? Maybe I'll watch that one, too. I think maybe we watch them all. Okay. Bring them all together. So, George of the Jungle is will be my, my main talking point, but... I'm pretty excited to see what they could possibly have done in a sequel. And then I guess Dudley Do-Right, I never saw either. So we'll, we'll do that. I might catch up with a couple of the shorts too, just so I can have the, be fully prepared for like what. Right. We'll have some, some Rocky and Bullwinkle universe talk. Yeah. Was there a Rocky and Bullwinkle movie too? I don't want to have to watch that, but yes, there was. And more recently, DreamWorks did a Peabody and Sherman movie. So Mm. there you go. Tendrils. As we said in Spy Kids, branches. <laughs> All right, Brian. Well, that, I think we'll have a good time with that. And thank you for for talking Zomb 3s and Five Cream with me. Five Cream and Z-Words. <laughs> Indeed. It was fun as always. I'm looking forward to the next one. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. 